And that's maybe a more perfect place to dive in. Um, let me pray for us, and then we will uh, hop into this. And um, yeah, hopefully some of this will be helpful to understanding this passage. Jesus, um, I don't know. It is strange, I think, for me to, to talk about suffering in that you have been gracious enough to me um, to where I haven't had to endure much suffering, Jesus. And so, in some ways, I feel like I come to this passage uh, as a novice, as um, someone with a surface-level understanding of what is actually the depth and the, the, the heart of this passage. And Jesus, what I'm asking of you this morning is that you would somehow take uh, my best understandings, my best attempt to hear your voice, to listen to what you have to say and what you're doing through this passage, and that Jesus, for all the ways that maybe I am not enough, or uh, I, I do not do this passage justice, I'm asking that you would make up the difference. God, that somehow the words that I communicate to this audience, that you would transform them from my lips to their ears, and that it would be something that actually is what you want to say to them. God, this isn't about me. This is about your glory. And I'm asking, Holy Spirit, um, would you do whatever it is that you want to do this morning? And would you use me however you see fit? Um, don't strike me with lightning, please. Um, and so I pray that in your name, Jesus. Amen. <laughs> Um, if I could somehow make a, a plug, I mean, you, some of you, I, I feel like if anybody knows anything about me, I enjoy, I enjoy a good book or two here and there. Um, and, and if I could make a plug for any book, I would say if there's like a book that you should like read in the next year, that's, ooh, that's a big, that's, I shouldn't go that, that's. <laughs> Because now I'm going to have to rethink that. But if you're like, oh, I got nothing else to read. What's a, what's a good recommendation? I would recommend to you a book called The Insanity of God by Nick Ripkin. If you haven't read it, it it's one of those. So I like saw the book on Amazon and whatever, re reviews were high. And for me, I don't know about you, but I'm like a little bit skeptical. Whenever I see like really like good reviews of a book, I'm like, it can't be that good. But there's no way. Like, I know Christians, sometimes we just rate things as fives because it's Christian. So, like, we don't actually care if an album is good. It's like, oh, he says Jesus, and so we give it a five. And it's like, that's not how it works here. Um, and so we'll do that to books. And I was like, man, I'm really skeptical about this book. But it's actually incredible. Like, uh, just to give you a, a backdrop of it, because I'm going to be referring to it a couple of times throughout uh, this talk, pretty much what happens that this guy, he is a missionary to Somalia. Uh, and Somalia being a predominantly Muslim country, hopefully I'm getting the facts right on this, but uh, a predominantly Muslim country, it, and it's, he's doing his best to, to reach people for Jesus in that place. And if you've ever worked with uh, Muslim students, or if you've ever journeyed in any of those places, you know that that's not something that just happens quickly. Like, fruit in those countries looks remarkably different than fruit in any other country, and you have to go in knowing that. So he's, like, there. He's doing his best to love the people there, to, like, reach them for Jesus, and just nothing is happening. Like, everything is going wrong. And really, he himself, like, 
uh, if I remember his story correctly, he shouldn't even really be on the mission field. Like the mission agency is like, you are not qualified to do this. He's like, but Jesus qualifies me, and so I'm going to go. Um, I don't know. That could or could not be the right posture. Um, and eventually, something happens. I think, uh, I don't want to spoil it for you, but he encounters some sort of crisis in his life that he leaves Somalia just really jaded. He and his family leave Somalia really jaded. And they ask the question, well, can, what good is the Christian faith? It, is, is it only a faith that, that is for the comfortable? Uh, is it a faith that only survives in comfortable environments? And when you put it in a hostile climate, it withers. Uh, and and it like, becomes this driving question of his whole life to where he like, researches and goes to different countries that are, that are hostile, that are closed to the gospel, and like, sits down with believers and hears their stories. And the things that he learns are absolutely incredible, that faith not only can survive in these harsh environments, but it flourishes and it grows and does something completely different. Um, and you know, it's, all that to say is he goes to China this one time, um, and he's, he's interviewing people there, and he's getting to know people. And the first person that he talks to is like, not the first, but one of the first people he talks to is this young kid who's like really excited to meet him and uh, really excited to talk with him and interview him. And he's like, okay, that's cool. And then he goes, and he goes to the next person, and they say, oh, yeah, that guy, that guy, yeah, he's, he's going to be someone God can use in a powerful way someday. But you can't trust what he says now because he hasn't been to jail he hasn't been to prison yet. You can't trust what he says now. He hasn't been to prison yet. And he finds that this is actually like a common sentiment with the people that he talks to, that for them, prison was, he, the one person compares it to, uh, in the same way that your ministers go to, whatever, seminary for theological training to learn how to, whatever, pastor churches, we go to prison. Um, <laughs> and, I, and I'm reading that, and I'm just thinking, man, in so many ways, I, I feel that way, not because I think I'm going to be used by God in some magnificent form, but because when I look at my life, I realize how paltry my sufferings are in comparison to what people experience in the wider world. Uh, even as uh, some of you in this room, you have experienced suffering that, that I can't even imagine. You know what you've lost. You know the physical, the emotional scars that you have incurred upon yourself for following Jesus. And, and really, this morning, I come to you as someone who's doing their best, but I haven't been to prison yet. So, like, take it for what it is. It's a, it's a grain of, of salt. Um, but I also think that it's possible that maybe, you know, none of us actually can really know what this passage totally means. Um, you know, Peter's writing in a time when Christian values and the resulting way of life were significantly different than the context that surrounds it, this, this Greco-Roman culture, right? Uh, it would have been impossible for them to somehow be an uncompromising Christian and, and to try to fit within society. Because you were living in that society and you're doing your best to actually follow Jesus, your life was remarkably different than the life that was surrounding, uh, surrounding you. Our, our contextual proximity to this passage is just different. We've had centuries of, of uh, Judeo-Christian culture and influence, right? And we still experience hardship. Our suffering just looks different, but we don't understand it to the extent that it happens here. And, and part of what I want to unpack this morning is the idea that in the, in the face of suffering, we're not surprised, we're not supposed to be ashamed, but actually we're blessed, 
which sounds so contrary to what we experience. Because if you're anything like me, suffering happens so rarely in your life that you are actually surprised by it. And it's not that, you know, you don't think suffering happens or is possible or will come someday. It's not that you don't negate those realities. You know what Jesus said about it. If you've read the New Testament at all, you will be hard-pressed to find a book that doesn't mention suffering. And if you haven't read any part of the New Testament, spoiler alert, suffering is everywhere. Uh, it's not some lofty concept that like requires a whole lot of like hermeneutical interpretation that's like relevant for them, but not necessarily for now. It, no, Jesus said it and actually said that, in, like, I think also in John, that you will experience suffering. Some people will persecute you and think they are doing a service to God in doing so. It's not that we don't think suffering is real or won't happen. It's just that we think that suffering won't happen to us. <laughs> and in America, I mean, we are, we are lulled into a sense of security and safety. Everything around us testifies to comfort, convenience, and luxury. Even now, we are in an air-conditioned building in moderately comfortable seats in the middle of a mall. And granted, some of you are like, well, it's kind of a questionable mall, like Perry's Barbecue doesn't actually serve barbecue, and I'm pretty sure there's no one named Perry actually at Perry's Barbecue. Still, we are in a mall nonetheless, right? And so it's hard to treat the world like our enemy, to remember that we're in some sort of like wartime effort when everything around us testifies to the opposite. I think Filet hit it on the nail, or hit the nail on the head last week when she said, we are privileged. We can live and read this passage uncomfortably precisely because we're not suffering. And unfortunately, the way that privilege works is that the things that are given to you as a result of your privilege, you begin to think that you've actually earned. Right? Like, you think you've actually worked towards it in some way. And so when you tie that to suffering, what then happens is that it means that because we're not suffering and we're privileged enough not to suffer, we think that we've actually done something good in our lives for us not to suffer, that we've earned our lack of suffering. And then when suffering comes our way, we're like, what the heck? What just happened? I thought we were friends. I thought, I thought we had a common understanding, the world, the universe, and I. Like, what, what does this mean? Why is the world against me. You know, we're, we might not say we're prosperity gospel people, theologically speaking, but the truth reveals itself when suffering hits. You know, Dennis Edwards, he points out in his commentary that this passage is the opposite of the prosperity gospel. If the prosperity gospel says you suffer because your lack of faith, this passage says precisely because of the presence of your faith, you will suffer. If the prosperity gospel says you are a child of the king and therefore deserve all health, wealth, and blessings that come with that, this passage reminds us that Jesus was also a child of God and was a king himself. And look where that got him. Peter says, yes, you are blessed. Yes, you are a co-heir. But you are a co-heir and a child of a God who subjects himself to the worst that evil can do so that many would enter the kingdom. The Lamb of God, the suffering servant. Suffering for our faith is actually a normal occurrence in other parts of the world. And actually more normal in our lives than we think. Uh, going back to the insanity of God, you know, one of the places that he goes, maybe the first place that he goes is, you know, 
the USSR, like the, he goes to like Russia and, you know, talks to some of the believers there and he's interviewing them and there's like a whole crazy story of this guy named Dimitri who I'll tell later, but if you really like want to understand the, the craziness of this story, you have to read The Insanity of God. I'm hoping this is like doing something in you where like, man, I don't normally read, but I actually need to read this book. Yes, you do. Um, but anyway, so he's like meeting people and interviewing people and as he's you know, interviewing some people, they're like, oh, who else can we get to kind of sit down with you and talk with you about their stories? And like this guy named Victor like corrals a whole bunch of people. And uh, the way that Nick writes the, the account, I just had to somehow, I just kind of copy and pasted and edited a little bit to, to shrink it down. But he says, you know, I listened in wonder as these believers almost casually recounted being sent to prison for five years three years or seven years, being beaten, forced to sleep naked in a cold, damp cell, or having nothing but moldy bread and boiled cabbage to eat for months. When we stopped to eat lunch, I gently scolded the group, saying, your stories are amazing. Why haven't they been written down? Your stories sound like Bible stories come to life. I can't believe you haven't collected them in a book or recorded them in some video form. Other followers of Jesus around the world could hear your stories and be encouraged by what God is doing here among those who are persecuted. And one of the guys, he turns to him, he says, Tell me, Nick, how many times have you awakened your son bef sons before dawn and brought them to a window and said to them, Boys, watch carefully. This morning you're going to see the sun come up in the east. He said, well, I chuckled. I, I've, never, I've never done that. My, I, if I ever did that, my boys would think I was crazy. The sun always comes up in the east. It happens every morning. And he says to them, Nick, that's why we haven't made books and movies out of these stories. For us, persecution is like the sun coming up in the east. It happens all the time. It's the way things are. There is nothing unusual or unexpected about it. Persecution for our faith has always been and probably will always be a normal part of our life. Rather than being surprised when suffering comes our way, what if the more appropriate posture is to be surprised at the lack of suffering in our lives? I mean, that's not, to, I mean, sometimes we're just blessed, right? And nothing is going wrong, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, we aren't storm chasers. We're not people who are, like, looking to pick a fight or get into suffering in some way and somehow trivialize what is actually dangerous. But if we're not suffering because we've chosen not to engage in mission, that's something else entirely, right? Suffering due to a lack of missional engagement could mean that you're in a period of discernment, but it also could mean just outright disobedience, I don't want to say that we don't suffer. I would never go that far, but I would say maybe the more appropriate question that we have to ask ourselves is what does suffering look like in our context? And I think, as I was reflecting on it this week, suffering looks a lot more like villainization or accusation, insults, and exclusion. I mean, the difference for us is that we can't be killed for it, right? Like, that's against the law in our country. We can't be killed for being a Christian. But in a society where justice is in vogue and humanitarian efforts abound, you might still encounter pushback because to the extent of which you embody those values. It's one thing to, to feed the poor. It might even be trendy to feed the poor. It is another thing to live with them. 
to know them by name, to choose to open your life to them. It's one thing to believe in justice or mercy. It's another to believe in both and to be wise and discerning enough to know when a situation calls for either. To actually say, in a world that's demanding justice, to be a voice that says mercy is also a thing. That will give you persecution. And in a world that says, actually, we just need to be merciful, that we just need to overlook, we need to forgive, to be a voice that says, actually, the justice of God is also important. We have to remember that, too. That will also bring persecution on your life. It's because the way that you live is a witness to the kingdom. Your life has implicated theirs, and the only way that they can justify their life and their behavior is to somehow write you off. Right? So you might be kicked off campus if you're, if you're in a varsity and you're doing your best to, to somehow be faithful and true to the word that God has called you to do. Um, you know, if you've followed any of their stories uh, over the last few years. Uh, or even, I think, um, was it the well? The well, they had a moment where uh, homeowners association, like they came after them and said, you cannot feed the poor in, our, in this area. Like you have to go. Like we don't want you here. Uh, and in this day and age of open letters, blogs, websites, tweets, all the things that might get written about you, you will incur persecution on yourself because of the way that you embody the values of the kingdom. It might mean awkward family dinners. It might mean friends disassociate with you. Part of believing the prosperity gospel, at least functionally speaking, is that we see suffering as unusual and contrary to the Christian life. And because the prosperity gospel tells us that we can believe, uh, that if we believe, nothing happens, and if, we, if something happens because we don't believe, when suffering comes our way, we can be tempted to be ashamed of what's happened to us because we believe that we've done something wrong. And what Peter is saying here is that actually there's nothing to be ashamed of. I find this fascinating because more than not being ashamed of Jesus, Peter is saying that. Don't be ashamed of Jesus. Peter is actually telling them not to be afraid or ashamed of the suffering that for Jesus, to not be ashamed of being associated with his name. And you have to understand, in that context, being a Christian, being called a Christian, it wasn't a compliment, right? Like, Today, if somebody were to come up to you, say, uh, and this would happen to me every so often, not to like brag or to toot my own horn, but every once in a while, somebody will say, there's something different about you, right? And you might be like, oh, they're like, are, are you a Christian? And you're like, yeah. And they're like, I knew it because you're different. There's just something different about you. It's a compliment, right? That's not the case here. Back then, to be called a Christian was a derogatory term. They were making fun of them. It was like, oh, Look at you. You think you're like Jesus. Oh, that's cute. Yeah, you're a crucified king, the, the king of the Jews. And, and in fact, like being a Christian back then was, was bad because the government actually had, had said, really, the, the deterioration of our society is because of Christians. They were seen as atheists because they didn't believe the gods of that day. They were seen as lawless and political uprisers because instead of saying, whatever, Caesar was king, they said, Jesus is Lord, right? And that's who we follow. They were seen as, uh, as incestuous because they referred to each other as brother and sister and said, I love you. And they, care. And they were seen as strange because they cared for the vulnerable of society. To be, a, to be called a Christian was an insult. And yet Peter is saying, if that's what you want to call me, God, I'm not even worthy of that insult. Like, if only I was actually a little Christ. Like, that would be amazing, 
Like, you think that's an insult? I don't even deserve that name. It is an honor to be associated with Jesus. If only we were little Christ. This name that you intended as an insult is actually the greatest honor you could have ever bestowed upon me. And if that's the worst that you can accuse me of, if that's the worst that you want to, uh, can call me, then the pleasure is mine. The shock isn't that we'd want to be associated with Jesus. It's that Jesus would allow his name to be associated with us. Guys, we are liabilities. I am a liability. I was never the smartest, was never the coolest, was never the funniest. I, I'm, I'm still, to this day, relatively irresponsible. <laughs> uh, you hand me something, there is no guarantee that it will still be there when I turn around. Like, it will be lost somehow. Um, how we still have lights on in our house is beyond me. But the fact that Jesus would allow himself to be associated, that I, he would allow himself to be associated with me, I don't deserve that. I'm unworthy of that. I'm hesitant to call anything that I've gone through suffering, but I remember like the, the, the summer after I became a Christian. So I'm from California, came to faith in Florida, Tampa with InterVarsity. Yep, yep, whoop, whoop. Um, and I remember going back home for that summer and wondering like, man, what does it mean to be a Christian in front of my friends and my family who have known me this way my whole life, and now Jesus has done something in me? And, and for my friends, so I actually like took the first week, I, if I remember correctly, I didn't talk to any of my friends that first week of the summer because I just needed time to like pray and process and figure things out. Like I was actually afraid of what would happen. Um, but what I didn't know like was that actually at, while this was happening, my friends were also afraid of me. So like they weren't inviting me places. So I wasn't asking and they weren't reaching out because they had seen that something had happened in my life. And they were noticing, okay, this guy that we've known, he's starting to post Bible verses on Facebook. He's starting to talk about like the way that God is moving on campus. He's starting to talk about being a part of mission. What does that even mean? Like what? Did he join some cult? Is he crazy? Is he going to come back judging us? And so they actually were avoiding me. And it wasn't until I had a conversation with a friend, I think I bumped into them at uh, maybe a store or something, and they said, oh yeah, you know, everyone's avoiding you because you're super religious now. And, uh, and yeah, they're, they're actually afraid. They don't know what, to, they're uncomfortable around you. They don't know what jokes to make. They don't know what to say. And so Actually, they've withdrawn themselves from you now that you're, you're super religious. Like, it's cool that you found God or whatever, but could you, could you keep that to yourself was almost the, was the sentiment. And I just remember, I actually don't know what hurt worse, the fact that they were avoiding me or the fact that it was like a conversation that they were having, like collectively as a group. And I was being told that, like, it's one thing to, to, like, you might have a feeling that people are out there spreading rumors about you. It's one thing to know that people are spreading rumors about you. That's actually the insult. Not that the rumor, like, you don't have to worry about the rumors if they're being spread about you. But if people tell you, hey, by the way, we said this about you, that's actually what hurts. Um, And I just remember feeling like, what? Like, all of a sudden, I was super self-conscious, like, I, I am now afraid, and asha- like, I, I'm ashamed to, like, be, like, now everyone knows this thing about me. 
And, and I tried to like wrestle with that that summer. And, and to me, it, it felt like this contradiction that if I were to back down and not mention my faith as people wanted to keep it private, what would that communicate? That Jesus was something to be ashamed of? That whatever impact it was having in my life actually wasn't worth sharing? And if it wasn't worth sharing, and if it was something worth being ashamed of, then was it really worth believing in? Jesus isn't some guilty pleasure that we just admire in the comfort and safety of our own homes, but if someone asks us about it, we're like, oh no, we don't know anything about that guy. Uh, As if we're somehow above him, we're the guilty ones. He was pleased to take our sins on the cross. Do you remember when you first surrendered your life to Jesus? Think about that. And you made a commitment. It was, it was all your greatest longings, all your greatest desires, all that found its, its fullness, its depth, its, its foundation in Jesus. And, and, and like Augustine, you said, you know, my heart was restless until it found rest in you. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, gratifying the desires of our flesh with no hope and without God in the world. But God being rich in mercy, rescued you while you were still dead in your trespasses and sins. Guys, the opposite of shame isn't pride, it's honor. It's humility. And this is directly connected to our ability to remember the one with whom we are associated with, to remember that it's a privilege to be associated with Jesus. And when we remember that, we can then be honored to suffer for him. To, to, the higher our view of Jesus, the better we are able to suffer for him. And in that way, suffering, strangely enough, connects to worship. Right? Like the way that we suffer can be an act of worship. And Peter, I find this fascinating, Peter knows better than anyone what it is to opt for self-preservation rather than to suffer for Jesus. And he's telling us, as someone who's experienced it firsthand, that to suffer for Jesus is better. Like, he knows what it's like to deny Jesus, to be in the thick of the moment, for someone to say, hey, do you know Jesus? And for him to say, no, actually, I don't know. And the the amount of resentment and bitterness and, and, and the sadness, the level of depth of sadness that he feels at that, he's saying, no, it is better to suffer for Jesus, better to be associated with him. And it's that thing that allows him when, you know, the way that church history writes it is that when Peter gets crucified himself, he actually says, no, I'm not worthy to die in the same way way is Jesus. Do not crucify me like him. And so you know what they do? They crucify him upside down because he's like, I don't want to be, I'm not worthy to die in the same manner as Jesus. Don't do that to me. And so they say, we'll crucify you upside down. And you know, I think Peter's like that, that's the honor. That's the honor. It's, it's the apostles, you know, getting battered and beaten and saying, you know, this is amazing. We are, we are, we, we're like Jesus. That's what this is. And I think this is why the persecuted church has so much to say, so much to teach us, because they understand underneath the threat of life and limb and harm to their families what, what it means to not deny Jesus. They see, the, there's a way that they see God that we just take for granted, I think. They know what it means to not be surprised by suffering or ashamed by it, to know that they are blessed. And the blessing, I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. The blessing doesn't come from the suffering itself, but the blessing is that the presence of the Holy Spirit is with you in that place. That's what's important, actually. 
This Holy Spirit that serves as a counselor, a comforter in the midst of our afflictions is a reminder of the promise of God. It is actually what Scripture says, that God gives us his spirit as a deposit and, and, and as, an, as a beginning of your inheritance. That actually what we experience now, no eye has seen, no ear has heard what awaits us on the other side. And to prove the faithfulness of God, he gives you his spirit. This isn't some pie-in-the-sky idea. This is real. These light and momentary afflictions pale in comparison to the eternal weight of glory that has been prepared for us. And if we can rejoice in the here and now when all is falling apart, what does that mean when the upside-down world is turned right-side up and we are vindicated before all of creation? In the same way that gold is refined by fire, our faith, more valuable, more precious than gold, is refined by suffering. We long for supernatural encounters of the Spirit. We hear these stories and we're like, yes, I want that in my life. But there's something to be said about the context of suffering in which those encounters come. Right? I think Francis Chan, he might have been spot on. He said somewhere, uh, you know, maybe the reason why we don't experience the Holy Spirit the way that, as comforting counselor, the way that other people do is because we're already too comfortable. Some of you this morning, you aren't suffering, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But that doesn't mean you get to completely relax. Because, on the contrary, actually, what, what Nick Ripken would say is that you can actually only grow in persecution what you take into it. You know, he, he tells the story of um, going back to, to Russia. He tells the story of Dmitri. And Dmitri, he's in prison. And Dmitri is so fascinating. Like, he, part of what he does when he is in this jail and he's suffering for Jesus is anytime he gets a scrap piece of paper, he would fill it with what are passages, scriptures that he remembers. He would fill it with song lyrics of worship songs that he remembered. He would fill it with stories and all these things. And what he would actually do with that full piece of paper is that there was this, uh, this pillar, this post that was in his room, his cell that was damp, and he would post it. He would put it there, and that would be his offering to God. And he would, like, every morning, he'd wake up in the morning, and he'd face the east, and he would sing his song to Jesus. And, like the, and he's in a prison. Like, everyone hated it. Like, people were so annoyed by it. But that didn't just come to Dimitri because he was in jail. It's because he had a whole life of investing into Scripture, into study, into worshiping Jesus with his whole life, that when he actually got to jail, it's, this is something that I already have in me. It's invested in me. What he grew in jail was something that he already took with him in the first place. And if that's true, if that is true of us, that we only grow in persecution, what we take into it, the question is, what would you take with you into yours? What are you taking into persecution? If it were all to be taken away from you, what would you have? What songs, what verses, what prayers, what stories, what testimonies, what God has done? If you can only grow in persecution, what would you take with you? What are you taking with you? That's the question for you this morning. This morning, if you're not suffering, the call for you is to live as if it could come at any moment. And to prepare yourself spiritually, invest in yourself that way. Worship team, you can come on up. I want to get something clear. In the same way that, you know, the blessing is not in the suffering itself, but in the presence of the Spirit. Suffering for Jesus doesn't automatically constitute his worship. It's what we do in the context of that suffering that is worship. 
It's not enough to just suffer for Jesus silently, but there is action that we're actually meant to take. And this past week, I've been thinking a lot about it. What are we supposed to do when we suffer? And as I've been reading through the Gospels, I kept coming across this word that in your translations might be hold fast or it might be persevere, but in mine, it's endure. And I think that's such a fascinating word because it's not a flashy word. It's not something that we think like, oh, endure, endure. That sounds so passive, right? Like you're on a mechanical bull and you endure or something. You're running a race and you just endure. That doesn't sound flashy. It's not fight back. It's not anything like that. But I, it sounds so anticlimactic. And yet I think there's something profound in that, something freeing in that. You know, Nick, he, as he's telling the story of Dimitri in China, you know, these guys, they, they just, they confess. They're like, you know, we were in prison. We didn't share our faith with one person. You know, we hid our faith. And yet when we came out of prison, you made us leaders. But we, the truth is we didn't know Jesus. We didn't really know anything about him. We, we failed Jesus in prison, right? Like we would think in our heads, in our, in our context, that actually going, for, going to jail for Jesus, that's enough. Like, we'd be like, yeah, we understand. We don't fault you for not talking to anybody because that's actually what got you in jail in the first place. Uh, and yet they know that there's actually something else that actually going to jail for Jesus, that, that's bare minimum. And I think Peter, what, what Peter's telling us here is that to endure is to commit yourself to your faithful creator and continue to do good. That's what it means to endure. This is the only place in the New Testament that refers to God as creator. And I think that word is intentional. We are not deists who believe that God created the world and left it to its own devices. We believe that the one who created everything and has all authority on heaven and on earth is faithful, that he is actively involved that he will keep his word to us. If he has the power to create the world, he also has power over our situations. When suffering comes, we cling to Jesus as if our lives depended on it because the fact of the matter is they always have. Everything we are has always depended on Jesus. It's never been our jobs. It's never been our skills. It's never been our abilities, our social standings. It's never been any of those. It's in Christ we live and move and have our being. And the deception of suffering for Jesus is that we think that if we somehow disassociate from Jesus, that our suffering will be gone. But we've already covered this. No, actually, as a result of being alive, as a result of being human, we will suffer. But if we're going to suffer regardless, then it is better to suffer for Jesus. And if we abandon Jesus in the midst of our suffering, then who do we have left? He is our truest friend. Suffering has a way of tempting us to turn inward, to self-protect, when actually we're meant to serve others. Some of you are in the hardest places of your life right now, in ministry, in family, in your microchurch, and you're wondering, should I give up? Should I pack it up? Should I give in? And this passage is saying, don't do it. Commit to Jesus. Continue to do good. The end of all things is near. Suffer as if you are not. 
Guys, Jesus' encounter is coming up. And some of you are like, I'm suffering. I don't, I don't think I'm going to Jesus' encounter. It's hard. This is a rough season for me. I think that's actually all the more reason to go. That is all the more reason to be there. Because actually, if you're, one, if you've never been through Jesus' encounter, Jesus is going to meet you in a way that's going to, whatever, provide perspective for your suffering. You realize, wow, actually, in the midst of all this, I am so deeply loved by God. I, I, I can persevere. I can hang in there. And then for some of you, if you've gone through Jesus' encounter, to, to be an intercessor, to be a volunteer, to pray for someone, to be desperate for God to intervene in somebody's life, to meet them in a, in a real profound way, you realize, actually, this is what it's always been about. This moment right here, watching someone transition from death to life, I want to be a part of this. And you can say, you know, when, when trials come my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, you know, it is well with my soul. Being in that place, guys, if you're suffering, there is no other place you should be than Jesus' encounter. Whatever my lot, that was taught me to say, it is well with my soul. Sometimes it feels like you're barely holding on, but listen to me, beloved, endurance is the victory. It never feels like it. And this is the tricky thing. It isn't until you no longer have to endure that you realize that enduring was a victory all along. As long as you're persevering and suffering, you're winning. And it isn't until you quit that you lose. Earlier this week, I was meeting with a microchurch leader, and, and, and I, I don't have their permission to tell the story, so I don't want to get into too much detail, but they were just sharing their life story with me. And all the things that are going on in this present moment, things with their family, things with their finances, you know, their microchurch not taking off the way that they wanted to, and, and even job and retirement and all these things, it just felt like this one crazy mixed storm of all the things that are going wrong in their life. And, and I'm just like, what? And what's interesting to me is there's this moment where she would say, you know, but all of this is happening because I'm trying to follow Jesus. All this is trying to distract me from following Jesus and being a part of this community and growing as a leader, growing in my understanding of what it means to say yes to my call. And you know what? Actually, all that doesn't matter. All that's secondary. What's actually most important, because it's most important, I'm going to do everything in my power to be here, to be part of this community, to do this thing. I just think there's something right about that. When, even when the world caves in around us, we are laser focused on the glory of God. We are committed to him and we continue to do good. We keep praying. We keep pouring ourselves out for the kingdom. We keep blessing those around us, even our enemies. We do not retreat from community. We press in even more. We remain harder. If your group is kicked off campus, you find another way to do evangelism. If you get chased out of the city by the homeowners association, you figure out another way to serve the poor. You do justice. You love mercy. You walk humbly with your God. You keep loving your family. This morning, if you're suffering, the call for you is to suffer as if you are not to suffer with the attitude of Christ Jesus that actually it is for the redemption of the world. This morning, as you come to the table, you remember Jesus who for the joy set before him endured the cross and scorned its shame 
taking upon himself the sins of us all, even in those last moments, committed himself to doing good by forgiving those who crucified him, remembering his mother and saying, John, you now have your, your mom. Mom, you now have your son. He forgives the people next to him. He offers life to the criminal next to him on the cross. That's what it means to continue to do good. His body was broken for us. In participating in this ancient ritual, we say yes to joining in him and allowing our bodies to be broken for the redemption of others. Where are you tired? Where are you ready to throw in the towel? Where are you scared to say yes because it means taking on suffering for Jesus? Can you hear Peter's words to you this morning that it is better to suffer for Jesus than to deny him and live trial-free? This morning, when you felt the comfort and the counsel of the Holy Spirit, come receive the elements once again. That on the night he was betrayed, Jesus, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of sins drink it. Do this as often as you drink it. And when you do it, you do it in remembrance of me. This morning, guys, the body and blood of Jesus given for you. Jesus, we want to know you, to be like you. And if that means the participation in your suffering so that we can experience the resurrection glory, then Jesus, we say yes to you. Jesus, would you help us to live in the reality that even if we are not suffering now, that we are actually meant to, to live as if it could come at any moment, to be investing in ourselves and investing in the relationship that we have for you, growing in nearness and in closeness to you, so that, God, when suffering comes our way, when, when things happen to us, when, when trials and tribulations come, that we are not found wanting or empty. But, Jesus, there is fullness, fullness of life in you. God, I don't know where people are at this morning. I don't know what they're experiencing. I don't know what they're feeling. I have no idea, but, Jesus, you know. And I'm asking you this morning, God, would you provide comfort and counsel to those who are suffering? Would they be able to hear your voice? Would they be able to sense your presence? Would they know your nearness, Lord? God, and for those people who are not suffering, who are uh, maybe blessed enough to not be going through any major trial at this point, Jesus, would you, I pray against a spirit of complacency and contentment Jesus, would they still hunger for you? Would they still thirst for you as if in a dry and weary land, Jesus? Would you meet them? Pray this in your name, Jesus.